0: Hello, and welcome to Essential Work, exploring the past, present, and future of jobs. This podcast is brought to you by the Battle of Homestead Foundation. I'm Nathan Ruggles. Thank you for listening. We bring you stories and struggles, people, and perspectives, interviews, and commentaries all on the world of work yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And welcome to a new year and season three on the podcast. We have a wonderful lineup of excellent guests in store for you. To kick things off, we are fortunate to have back with us two longtime friends of the podcast to take a look back to 2021, as well as forward to 2022. It's longtime labor leader and organizer, Rosemary Trump, the first female international vice president of SCIU, the Service Employees International Union. She's here along with former professor and machinist, Charlie McAllister past president of the Pennsylvania Labor History Society. Rosemary, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: And, of course, with her is Charlie McAllister.
2: Great to be here, as always.
0: Thanks, both of you, for coming back, joining us once again to share your thoughts. Today, we're doing a year in review and a year in preview so we talk about the past, present, and future of jobs on this program. So, so we're going to talk about the issues of we've seen over the past year and uh, thoughts these two may have on the year ahead.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, really, one of the highlights of 2021 for me uh, was this wonderful film that was released at the end of the year called Don't Look Up. And I think it capsulated in a very thoughtful in a very humorous as well as a very serious way of addressing many issues that we are living through today and have to face tomorrow. And particularly since uh, one of our Battle of Homestead Foundation members is a star in it, Mark Rylance, who is writing and producing a film about what took place in Homestead in 1892 and the surrounding uh, decades uh, with H.C. Uh, Frick and Andrew Carnegie, which again reflects much of what's happening today.
0: There is a lot to dissect. We should say, you know, potential spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen the film, skip ahead a couple minutes here and we'll get, <laughs> and then come back after you have it. it.
1: It's really an excellent film. And I know it's uh, made a social uh, media circuit on uh, all the various platforms, and many people are watching it or have watched it. And, of course, uh, the critics have been reviewing it, and they usually concentrate on the premises that a meteor is going to be coming within a six-month period to destroy the Earth, that it's an allegory for what's really happening, which is climate change is destroying the Earth and threatening uh, the existence of the human species and perhaps all living things. And it's true, that movie is uh, a great allegory for that subject matter, but what I think is really brilliant is how the writers were able to include some of the underpinnings for why people refuse to believe it, why people, you know, will chant that, don't look up, don't look up, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And deny that this meteor is coming because there are forces out there that it's not to their economic interest to have people look up and worry about that. And we're dealing with that today, the threat of authoritarianism, uh, fascism, frankly, Uh, Mm -hmm. the fact that private enterprise can solve all problems without interference with government or workers or unions, um, that, you know, that to actually p- try to politicize scientific evidence. I mean, rather than try to either disprove scientific evidence in a scientific manner or affirm what's going on, to take action. And uh, the, 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 the corruption of the political process with uh, money, you know, that power is for sale. You get a voice, you get a special treatment if you've got money. And the whole threat of our democratic society is uh, reflected in this movie. As an example, at this very moment, all the um, attention is being paid to uh, our West Virginia United States Senator, Joe Manchin. The question is, is he for sale? Because the coal operators who have substantially raised money on his behalf in order to underwrite his campaigns and influences legislation, are very much against the current Build Back Better legislation, and would, in fact, address climate change, as well as many other serious problems in our society. The whole question of uh, how to train the workforce, how to bring the workforce, how child care would bring women back, how uh, providing for domestic assistance at homes would Help um, bring workers back into the economy, a whole host of important domestic legislation that needs to be addressed in order for us to go forward as a society. The fact that you know that Mansion Senator Manchin, has uh, any hesitation whatsoever to reject this legislation as a sitting representative of uh, the state of West Virginia which is in desperate need for this legislation, for early uh, pre-K child education, for uh, assistance of family and medical leave, uh, for assistance of child care, for the creation of these new jobs that will help to save the earth and all of its inhabitants and and, uh, beings uh, it's it's outrageous that he's uh, you know choosing the side of the co operators over that um, over over those concerns and and so I think what this film does through the character frankly that uh, Mark Rylance uh, plays is to <laughs> demonstrate uh, this very clearly that that money counts and really is the underpinning of our political society. And if there was ever a threat to democracy, uh, that's among the top threats. So I would urge that people that have already uh, seen the film and enjoyed it perhaps go back to it and look at it through that lens. Is Well, you know, it's humorous to see all the reaction of people why is that possible that people would ignore it? And how does it apply to today's issues? So I wanted to uh, get a plug-in for yeah. don't look up. Please do <laughs> do look for don't look up on Netflix <laughs> and see it and try to make your own decision about what its meaning really is.
0: Talking about it as you know, as a satire, Charlie, we had an email exchange and it was funny because you and I had the exact same thought about this film separately in terms of another film that this reminded us of. Sure. Dr. Strangelove, right. or, or you know, subtitled How I Learned to Stop Worrying and, and Love the Bomb, you know, being another great satirical film and how we don't see enough of those, in my opinion, these days. And, and it worked definitely on a couple of different levels. I mean, there's a lot of just comedy, right? Comic lines, one-liners, funny exchanges between funny characters and quirky characters. But if, if you look below that, you know, Rosemary wisely suggested a second viewing, which I need to, I need to make is that, you know, and the allegory works beyond just on the level of, of global warming and climate change, um, you know, works on the level of COVID and how we, you know, whether we're embracing science or not, which when it comes to a pandemic, um, you know, which is another potential disaster, right? Absolutely. Or any any number of disasters and things you two both already brought up, right? That, that it works on those different levels of saying, you know, what is, are we taking these issues seriously? And I also think the film, if you look at it, was also in some ways an indictment of those on the left as well. I mean, you had two different characters, one in Leonardo DiCaprio, and the other played by Jennifer Lawrence. And then you had a, a third character come in, the young man, um, his name is escaping me at the moment. And e- each of those, I felt, represented a different sort of portion of the left or, or the progressive side. And, and each of them had their foibles and stumbles and and had their perspectives and needed to be united together. And, uh, you know, spoiler, they, by the end, they were united together on the <laughs> yeah. same page. But there were moments where there was fractures among the three of them, right? And I think we can easily say that's been unfortunately true among progressives, right? Uh, yeah. Those on the progressive side, of the left side, of not always being quite United, <laughs> and going back to what you're saying, Rosemary, in terms of the Democrats having trouble getting together with with this rogue mansion, right? And and Charlie, you look like you're about to, you got some, a thought on the tip of your what? tongue. What were you thinking?
2: Well, I mean, they were united by by all getting destroyed in the end because, uh, you know, the failure of being able to turn this around and stop the the disaster from happening. And that is a cautionary tale for the left. And and particularly with us all being confined for two years, it's been very difficult to have social interaction and the happiness, the joy of that. As uh, Mark Rylance has written us recently, he's so ecstatic because he's doing plays again. And he's with a bunch of people not coming in for one shot, you know, in an <laughs> afternoon, repeating several lines. But my favorite line, I mean, the privatization of space. And the Elon Musk, I mean, the whole, the whole uh, phallic ridiculousness of the whole thing when the earth is in such trouble and we have such a beautiful planet. But I mean, there were belly laughs in that film. And my favorite of all was at the end in the credits, uh, when the very ultra rich freeze-dry themselves and send themselves off to the closest inhabitable planet that they've figured out through careful calculations, 28,000 years later, they arrive at this and they all walk out naked into the new Eden where they're going to just have a grand time because according to their calculations, it's a place where humans can live and survive. And they get down and are surrounded by dinosaurs and are consumed. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, to me, just the, the idiocy of looking at Mars as a solution to the problems of Earth and spending so much money on these egotistical it illustrates the incredible concentration of capital, uh, mm-hmm. the sucking of the lifeblood of the planet, of the humans in it, into a few places, and then being spent in the most ridiculous ways. And we, this, so much of the culture celebrates this stuff. Uh, it's ridiculous, and it's, it's tragic, and it is totally unsustainable. And I mm-hmm. think what is so real about the present situation is we are being confronted by crises which cannot be solved individually. They can't be solved regionally. They can't be solved nationally. They are global issues, which absolutely require us to strengthen global institutions, to look at peacemaking, to look at education, and look at getting our hands dirty and breaking down the barriers between intellectual and physical labor, and stop the arrogance of people looking down on other people because of the kind of work they do. My generation grew up under the fear of the atomic weaponry and the destruction of the earth, and and we now are this generation. I think one of the things that unites us and makes this time look pretty familiar to us is that we are facing an existential crisis like we did back in the 60s with, uh, or in the 50s with the atomic weapons and the fear that that was imminent and, and that it was a real threat with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a major. Uh, factor in my life, and uh, it was a week after the Cuban Missile Crisis that I met Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, but I think w- what to me, what the movie and and what the reality says is that uh, ignorance is no defense, that denial is no defense. Uh, to look at the present state of the environment, and the storms, and the the devastation, the the desertification all kinds of issues around the environment is inescapable it's not something we can turn our eyes from and be saved from and so that's like all the the real problems of the world they they require organization they require mm-hmm. information they require dialogue debate all the things i think that the labor movement at its best brings to the table because we need the ability to discuss. We need the ability to organize. We need the ability to to answer these uh, crises in some kind of a rational, collective way. The earth is one. There's nowhere to escape. The lines on the border don't mean anything when it comes to COVID, when it comes to environmental devastation. And that's why, you know, the two great crises of our time, they keep talking about the supply chain issues and labor shortages. I mean, it it, it just seems almost absurd. I mean, the supply chain, the, let's break the chain. Let's bring the jobs home. All manufacturing should be brought closer to the places where the consumption takes place. That would cut down on all this waste of transportation and burning of fuels, et cetera. There's it takes a little
0: energy to to ship something across the Pacific Ocean. Yes, from and uh, sitting out for months
2: outside the harbor, China, on a,
0: on a on a container ship, it's to nuts. Uh, A port in Long Beach, or whatever, right? It's
2: nuts, and and look at the environmental devastation to China with because of the <laughs> concentration of so much of the manufacturing there it's not healthy for any the way the world has been organized by capitalism the the push for the lowest the the bottom the rush to the bottom is a terrible way to do it and then the other great crisis of immigration and people on the move and we sit here weeping over our labor shortage when we have people dying, literally dying to get in, Haitians walking from Colombia through the Darien gap up through Central America to come to work. I mean, we need workers. We've never, we're not going to rebuild manufacturing without an intelligent, balanced immigration policy. We need an industrial policy. We need a immigration policy that makes sense for and we need labor we need organized labor we need organization at every level that's those are it seems to me those are the answers to this but we really have to look at the 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 crisis the depth of the crisis and come up with answers that are adequate to it
1: you know, what the media likes to concentrate on in terms of dealing with this issue of a labor shortage and uh, the manufacturing crisis of being able to recruit and retain labor, that their answer is well, you have to address higher wages and better benefits, Absolutely. as well as childcare for women and perhaps some training. What they never say is what you need to do is bring back unions. Unions right. are key to all of that, of raising the wages, <laughs> of Indeed. legislating the child care, of the, giving voice to the workers of what they need to be able to stay on the job. And, you know, labor shortage is an, is another term for workers are going on strike. Yes. They may not be going on strike together as a unified body, but they're going on strike one uh-huh. by one by submitting their resignation or their early retirement application or they're just uh, walking away from the job and saying, take this job and shove it because they don't have a voice in what they need to be able to stay on that job, including, you know, the fear of COVID. If without unions, you don't have the ability to discipline workers and encourage workers to do the right thing on the job. I mean some some people complain, you know, I go to work and you know, only maybe 10 or 15% of us wear masks. The others don't. They they object. But if you had a union there representing the workers and had health and safety committees and had the opportunity to educate the workforce about the importance of keeping each other safe so that we can continue on the job, and earn our livings, and not have the fear of getting sick, and uh, bringing home a disease, then it, it makes it so much easier for the employer. So truly, unions are in the best interest of business. And business needs unions. It's good for America. It's good for the economy. It's good for the bottom line. It's good for their profit margin. And yes, they may have to share some of that stock buyback money that they're giving to uh the shareholders
0: Girl, with God the forbid. workers.
1: <laughs> and they God may... forbid
0: they should share the billions in stock buyback and dividends. <laughs>
1: exactly. And God forbid they may have to share some of their hundreds of millions of dollars of bonuses that they give themselves.
0: Oh, Rosemary now, you're, <laughs> you're...
1: <laughs> I'm stepping on their toes. It's true. You are, but hey. Hey, I'm I'm stepping on the toes of the 2% to take care of the 98%. And the fact of the matter is, when they talk about that uh, inflation's going up, inflation's only going up because they're unwilling to pay the workers the amount of money that they need in order to buy the products that will create economies of scale and get our economy working again to reduce inflation. We need a bigger pie, and we need less of the 2% eating 80% of the pie and leaving the other 20% of the pie for the 98% to eat.
0: So a bigger pie with more fairly sized slices. Right. If the issue right is wages not being high enough or working conditions not being good enough, or benefits uh, not being strong enough, then yeah, how did we get those things in the first place? So much is,
2: is unions. People who are organized and have a voice have a stake in the system. Things can move forward better. Here in Pittsburgh, we have a new black mayor and i'm very happy i hope
0: the first that, the first black mayor, the I first say, black in mayor. History of pittsburgh right?
2: and we may have a black uh, congressional person in the next round it's very very possible so uh, this is good and and good for pittsburgh and uh and uh, good for the steelers <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should i should mention uh, too, the, the you know going back to mark Ryland's that character yeah. um you know being kind of this Interesting combination of Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, and you know right. what have you, um, Mark
1: Zuckerberg, <laughs> Zuckerberg, sure,
0: yeah. and and you know combining a few of these uh, this idea that you know the, the corporations will save us or the wealthy yes. will save us or or that the or save a few of them, the anyway. brilliant, the really technologically minded entrepreneurs will save us with their hubris and arrogance, and and in the film and but then you know like you said. Um, you know, we have we have these three guys <laughs> billionaires competing to see who get to space, and and it makes me think about you know, is that how we got to the moon? Am, am I, uh, right. you know d- did we get there because we had billionaires each fighting to see who was going to get there first? No, um, you know, well, and the, all the space, the ge- Blue Green Alliance, it, it was in part they folded in an organization called the Apollo Alliance. The Apollo program, which, you know, within a decade uh, put a human being on the moon, was, was not about a bunch of uh, a wealthy billionaires yeah. uh, fighting to get there. It, it was about this country, uh, A, deciding we were going to do it, and, and then B, putting the resources behind it, including our ingenuity and, and, and our, our uh, intellect and our hard work. And all those values and things that helped build this country and managed to get there. Now, sure. you know, um, we could talk about who might have been excluded from that project.
2: no, we Certainly.
0: But at its core, it was the, the country going together. We were all there. Uh, I wasn't alive at the time. But, I, you know, uh, growing up, seeing that footage, you know, of landing on the moon, I felt like I was there, too. The country was there together at that moment. Um, and in much of the world, I think watching and, and uh, that spirit of that, um, you know, uh, how how might we capture it again? Which um, so solidarity, right? So speaking and, and speaking of solidarity, this has been a year of solidarity in many ways, yes. um, hasn't it? Um, in, that we've seen uh, across the country. Uh, rosemary I, I think oh absolutely indeed, uh,
1: absolutely there have been many organizing drives that have been successful and uh including in starbucks and amazon and and uh other major suppliers and the university of pittsburgh uh the teamsters organizations seiu and healthcare and education uh for the uh, teacher organizations and so it, there are a lot of um, of victories to celebrate, but unfortunately, as many of those victories take place, it's it's really not significantly impacting the density of the labor movement. And I think that what you've pointed out is um, is important, uh, Nathan. That in terms of our past history, is how we've had success is by working together as a country, pulling the country together through. Our taxes and having many people included in the debate, not permitting one or two, three individuals determine, oh, I'm the smartest guy, richest guy in the room. I'll figure it out for everybody else and mm-hmm. I'll solve all the problems all right. that we were able to do it in a democratic way. And the fact that, you know, that they have the hubris to uh, suggest that they, uh, Are the uh, the end all be all uh, problem solvers? (laughs) Is again a show of how um, authoritarian our our country really is becoming.
0: Becoming. Well, we had a a president who was the same sort of point of view. It was right about. I know more than the generals.
2: I know more than everybody. Yeah,
1: right. I mean, I think I, I think it was Elon Musk that said. Well, I don't really believe in taxes because, after all, I, I can figure out with my billions of dollars how to best use them for my purposes that I want to, to take care of.
2: And I'm well, more efficient than the government. That's what I
1: saying. <laughs> right? I'm more efficient <laughs> than the government. Well, a well, wise man once
0: said that you know taxes is the price we pay for civilization. You know, so but Rosemary I'm sorry and equity, and
1: <laughs> you're right for civilization and and, and equality and opportunity as well as for a humane society. I mean, uh, you know, this upcoming elections that we're going to be having in 2022, particularly in the Congress and future elections, every election is important. There is no such thing as an off year. Every local, state, and federal election is important. But, of course, November is going to be as important as 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 the, the one that took place in, in 2020 in the presidential election, because we have to start, you know, reinforcing the democratic forces in our country. And it's never been more clear since the 30s that if you want to vote for the rich in elitism and authoritarianism and fascism, you've got the party to vote for. It's called the Republican Party. And if you want to vote for... Uh, a, a wide swath of America having a voice, all Americans being engaged regardless of race, color, or creed, and and uh, sharing the wealth of the nation that's created, then you vote for the Democratic Party, uh, that it is the rich against the poor, that it is the working class uh, against the business owners that want to shut them out from having a voice. If you believe in a democracy in this country and not just having an elite uh, strong man at the head of your government, then you had better get mobilized, get yourself to the polls, your family, your friends, your neighbors to the polls to vote for those uh, politicians that voted for the Infrastructure Act that voted for Build Back Better, that voted for the Voting Rights Act. And and those are the uh, politicians we want to keep in office to keep this great experiment of American democracy spreading and intact and can grow and can benefit not only the United States of America, but as Charlie so eloquently pointed out, the entire globe, because... This is what we have to engage in in the future for the salvation of our earth, is to have everyone engaged in helping to save this earth. I really think the issues are on the side of the Democratic Party, and they are the advocates for keeping our democracy. And if you believe in voting and not shooting your way to power, but voting your way to power, then you need to be mobilized and motivated and this is an opportunity to do that and we have the issues to generate that mobilization
0: i want to get your thoughts charlie in terms of the solidarity we've seen among workers in this past year particularly you know a lot of this right here in pittsburgh um
2: yeah i i, I was so encouraged by the the victory of the Pitt faculty, uh, and having been in a unionized university at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, I mean, I understood the importance of unionism, and the union up there was warning the administration of the demographic decline that was inevitable, that was foreseen. Instead, they, the administration went into a massive building of of fancy apartments for the students, which was absolutely the wrong things to be doing at the time it was done. It's put the state system of higher education on the verge of bankruptcy when these trends were known and were spoken about by their own faculty. But the, the state system has had a long tradition of hiring chancellors from Florida non-union, anti-union chancellors. I mean, what is this about? But we have here at Pitt, it seems to me, that the future of higher education is really illustrated because what have they done for years has been replacing tenure-track people with temporaries, temporary faculty with less stature rights, participatory Presence in the curriculum and, and the the departments, and so what do they get? They get a seventy three percent vote for the union, uh, overwhelming uh, here because of the the squeezing of the majority of their workers who live in a much a, a, a low it's a caste system. And higher education desperately needs uh, representation and protection for people's freedom of speech, which is under attack all over the country, whether it's at the level of high schools and middle schools, uh, but also at universities.
0: Uh, and And just Charlie, when you say caste system, just did you could explain what you what you mean by that? the what? When you say cast system, yeah, well, uh, we, if you could just you explain tenu- to people what you mean, yeah, you doing. have the
2: tenure track people who will be making, you know, 80 to 150,000 a year, and then you've got the temporaries are making 30 to 40 thousand a year, and they're stuck there, and there's no adjuncts, essential right? difference adjuncts uh, between. Their education, their background, their intelligence, or anything else—it's their luck <laughs> of hitting the right moment, of having friends in the in the existing uh, apparatus, et cetera, et cetera, and the and the unfairness of it all, and and the students look at it and say, you know, here here's my professor making thirty thousand a year in a place that I'm paying sixty, 000, seventy thousand. Every student is. What's going on here? Why, the unfairness of such a system is so evident. And so the student workers at Columbia University, 7,000 student workers run the right to have organization, representation. They got their wages increased.
0: We're this talking is, grad, graduate students? This is student
2: workers. Okay. So that's broader than that includes, I would I think which I think is a smart way to go. It includes graduate students, but includes a lot of other student workers on campus campus. Okay. And it seems to me the more you can broaden out the base of the people, that's what we're about, <laughs> broadening the base of people who get to participate, not narrowing it. And I think uh, that's the future of the labor movement is broadening the base, opening the discussion, getting more people involved. That's frankly, the only hope for humanity is that we do that
1: And and building on uh, Charlie's point of the unfairness of this uh, matter, talk about unfair. The uh, Pitt News uh, just this last week published an article about the fact that the University of Pittsburgh is spending over $3 million on a law firm to fight this unionization and uh, and to put up roadblocks about collective bargaining for the union. And unfortunately, Penn State and Temple University and others are paying... uh, Obscene amounts of of taxpayer dollars and student tuition money that should be going for education to law firms. That is obscene
0: amounts of money. Three million dollars?
1: Three million at the University of Pittsburgh. And this could be going to the faculty in terms of improved wages and benefits and conditions of employment. And it would benefit the university as well as it the whole the whole theory that the that a public university particularly but any employer frankly we have a national labor relations act that specifically says that it's the purpose of this law to encourage unionization so does the public uh, the pennsylvania employment relations act that this legislation is for the purpose of encouraging collective bargaining and unionization and that they spend money to go against the intent of this law, well, there should be a law that says they can't (laughs) do it, specifically. But failing (laughs) that, the President of the United States and the governor of Pennsylvania should issue executive orders saying you can't do it and take them to court on the basis that they are violating the intent of the law, the essence of the law that was passed, to give workers a voice and to have an opportunity to get their fair share out of the system and just not hand it over to the executives of these universities, which is not benefiting the students, the educational system, and it's not it's not benefiting society or our economy. So it is time to get the Pro Act passed vigorously enforced and get the density of unionization that we need in this country, which should go back to at least 30, 40, 50 percent. The fact of the matter is all the polls show that if, if people could freely join a union and participate,
0: over two-thirds would. So what percentage are we at right now? are 11 percent. 10 In or terms of the overall, the overall, overall percentage
1: of the workforce is about 10 or 11% organized uh, and have collective bargaining rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's threats of putting all of the, unions are fighting for their lives every day to keep those relationships that they have because, again, the hubris of the top echelon of our uh, managerial society believe that their ideology of you know i'm the uh, i'm the emperor and you're the slaves is with us still today and uh that's why that law was passed in 1935 and we have get, got to get back to vigorous appreciation for the rights of workers to have the right of a voice at the workplace which expresses another form of democracy and that's the key here is voice and opportunity and fair play and common sense. And where there are unions, they have found that for the most part that these, these enterprises and service organizations run more efficiently and more fairly and, uh, to the benefit of the community and to the benefit of of our economies, let's remember that in the 1930s, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States and the head of the Democratic Party of that era, led the Democratic Congress to pass the eight-hour day, the end of child labor, the uh, uh, minimum wage, the uh, Occupational Occupational and Safety and Health Act. Social Security, Medicare, every Republican legislator opposed that legislation and just as vigorously called it communistic, socialistic, attacked it, uh, spent big money to try to defeat it. And I would ask who, who in this listening audience would give back any one of these programs of, uh, of aiding the elderly or the disabled or the widowed uh, mother of uh, two or three children, uh, who who would give back the eight-hour day and want to go back
0: to the 12-hour day? So, Rosemary, are you saying that, that, that people had to fight for these things and, and achieve them, <laughs> them at one time? We didn't always have them, and some people opposed
1: them? Yeah, well, that, um, I, yeah. they, they, came at, they came at the cost <laughs> of much blood and much sacrifice, and it's our generation— that has got to honor that sacrifice of past generations to preserve it for ourselves and our children
0: in the future. That concludes part one of our conversation with Rosemary and Charlie. Look for part two soon, whether in your podcast feed or email inbox, which means you need to hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and sign up for email updates and Essential Work Podcast updates. You can find out more about Rosemary and Charlie on the new website of the Battle of Homestead Foundation, an organization to which they have devoted so much of their time, passion, and love. That's at battleofhomestead.org. Links are in the show notes in your podcast app, as well as on our website, essentialworkpodcast.org. While you're there, be sure to check out our past episodes. You'll also find those on all the most popular podcast apps for your phone or device, including Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it. Also, please take a quick moment, to give us those 5 stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify as well if you listen there, and write us a nice positive review. It helps the podcast and makes it easier for folks to discover us. And if you really want to help us out, go to battleofhomestead.org, click that donate button and give Whatever you can, every little bit helps keep us going, whether 20 10 or $2 a month. Keep in mind that for these $30 a year, that's only 2 and a half bucks a month, less than a cup of coffee. You also get all the benefits of membership with the Battle of Homestead Foundation. We welcome your comments, suggestions, and questions. Email us at comments at essentialworkpodcast.org. Or just leave us a thoughtful message on our listener line, 412-326-9435. We might just feature it on a future episode. Essential Work is produced by me, along with Angela Bachman. Angela also served as chief editor and audio engineer this week. Check out her work at thatsoundgirl.com. Brittany Sheets designed our logo. She's at bsheetscreative.com. Jason Kendall composed and recorded our original theme music. Find him at jasonkendallproductions.com. Larry McCullough gets the word out as Battle of Homestead Foundation Communications Chair. Thanks to the members of the Program Committee for their feedback and advice. Special thanks to our producing sponsor, the Battle of Homestead Foundation. This is Essential Work, exploring the past, present, and future of jobs. I'm Nathan Ruggles. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. 2021 has been a year of transition for all of us. At the Battle of Homestead Foundation, they have discovered new ways to advance their mission of heritage, education, and social action. They expanded their educational outreach to include a weekly online tour of people's history locations through the Charlie's Monday Marker video series, as well as far-reaching discussion of social and economic trends with the podcast Essential Work, the past, present, and future of jobs. They presented seven timely online public panels featuring nationally known authors and historians. Topics included workforce shifts from heavy industry to healthcare. The Women's Suffrage Movement, Uprooted Immigrant Neighborhoods, Protest Songs, in Today's Civil Action Movements, the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain, Historical Roots of Today's Social Philanthropy, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's world-famous City Steps. They establish a professionally archived labor history collection, thousands of documents, photos, recordings, and remembrances of labor history spanning decades. They co sponsored the Blair Mountain Centennial in West Virginia, honoring a long neglected part of U.S. history with a landmark Labor Day weekend of events. They built a new and more accessible website, which you should check out at battleofhomestead.org. They did all this with help, the essential support of all the individuals like you who enjoyed the programming appreciate the hard work of the citizens, workers, educators, and historians that make it happen, and value their mission to preserve, interpret, and promote a people's history focused on the significance of the dramatic labor conflict at Homestead, Pennsylvania in 1892. In 2022, they'll present a new round of thought-provoking programming. Membership, along with special donations, is essential to their success. Annual membership is only $30, $20 for retirees or the underemployed, and just $10 for students. Join now at battleofhomestead.org. You can also choose to contribute at any of a number of special donor levels, and donations are tax-deductible. Membership also provides multiple free admissions to a variety of historical museums and sites in the greater Pittsburgh area. Check out the details at battleofhomestead.org. As this singular year comes to a close, while we still may have much to be thankful for, we also all see the urgent necessity of doing more to share our progressive labor history to a wider audience and inspire a new generation of activists and organizers. Your membership and engagement ensures that the Battle of Homestead Foundation will continue to do just that. Show your support today at battleofhomestead.org. In solidarity, BHF thanks you and wishes you good health, positive spirits, and both peaceful and joyous days ahead.